0: And now, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, this morning commencing to read at verse 19, and reading through verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10, and commencing to read at verse 19. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Hebrews 10 at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God abides forever. Why is so much of the Bible devoted to doctrine? That is, to statements regarding what we are to know and what we are to believe. It's an important question, isn't it? Why is so much of the Bible devoted to those things that we are to know and therefore those things which we are to believe? The answer can be fairly simply stated, but it has profound consequences. The reason the Bible is so full of those things to know and to believe is because those truths are utterly definitive and conclusive about each and everything that they say whether it is about God and who He is and what He has done, whether it is about man who He is and how He is to relate to God, or many other subtopics flowing from those things, the Bible has much of its content devoted to what we are to know and what we are to believe because these truths are definitive and conclusive. Now we live in a day and age when many people may say, you may well have heard this, perhaps you may even be one such this morning, people who say, but it doesn't really matter so much what you believe. It doesn't even matter so much what you may or may not know. But of those things that you do know, does it matter so much what you believe? The what doesn't matter so much. What matters more, people say today, is how you believe it. That is, whatever it is we may want to believe, and often people want to argue you're free to believe whatever you want. But whatever that is, we have to believe that with a measure of sincerity, but also with tolerance even for other views that might be the very opposite of what we say we believe. That's the spirit of our day and age, isn't it? We're not so much interested in truth that is definitive and conclusive. We just have to be tolerant, even of those things that are the very opposite, as we might say, the very antithesis of what we profess to believe. Now, in total contrast to that spirit of our age, the human authors of the New Testament in particular, though it is true of the Old Testament as well, but as we're in the book of Hebrews, we're thinking about the New Testament and the book of Hebrews in particular. The authors of the New Testament and the author of the book of Hebrews in particular demands faithfulness to the truth God has revealed. In particular to this truth that God revealed through this author and indeed through the prophets in the Old Testament before them. Remember how Paul put it when he wrote to the Galatians? He says for me to um, not quote him directly first but to paraphrase him, he would say, I don't care who it is who says anything different to what has been revealed concerning Christ and His gospel. Do you remember that? Galatians 1 verse 8. He didn't write, I don't care, but he said something in fact even more strong than that. He says, if anybody preaches any other gospel than that which you heard, that which is revealed from God Himself through His Christ, through His apostles, what? Let him be accursed, whether it be angel or any other man, it does not matter. That's why we could put it in that colloquial term of our day, I don't care who it is. I don't care who they think they are, there is something to be believed, and that and only that is the truth concerning Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, truth is of central importance, and here in particular, as we come to Hebrews chapter 10 again, it is definitive when it comes to salvation. And so, the way that we then live as professing Christians, the way we live the Christian life, as we say, must be consistent with that truth that faith that we confess. A claim to a holy Christian life has no validity and, indeed, has no meaning when uncoupled from the truth, the doctrine of the Word of God. Do you think that's too strong to say that? Do you think it's controversial to say that? The Bible would not think not. There is no definition of what holiness is without the revealed truth of who God is. And so, a claim to a holy Christian life has no validity or meaning, uncoupled, disconnected from the doctrine, from the truths of the Word of God, the Bible. If you like it in real fancy words, but perhaps sometimes it's easier to remember it, summarized this way, orthodoxy, right belief, leads to orthopraxy, right practice, right living. And that's the order in which they must come. Reveal truth, then true Christian piety, true Christian living. Orthodoxy, right belief, leads to orthopraxy, right living, and practice. That's the conviction of the author of to the Hebrews here. He's devoted somewhat nine and a half chapters to the proclamation of doctrine, of truth, regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us through this whole series, then you will know it has taken us a long time to go through it. It's not just a statement here and a statement there, nine and a half chapters concerning doctrine, who Christ is and what He has done. And now as he transitions from doctrine to what we call application, the so what? What is the Christian to do in the light of this truth that is revealed that he is to believe. He roots it in everything that has gone prior to it. He does not say, well, now, we've done the doctrine piece, so you can forget all about that. You know, you can take your midterm or nine-and-a-half chapters of the book of Hebrews, and if you get a passing grade, then you can just forget about all of that. And now we'll talk about the Christian life as if it was the second half of two unconnected parts of a class. No, he says, in the light of everything I have just said, and it would have taken a long time, of course, nine and a half chapters of saying it, on the basis of that he now says, therefore, brothers, everything that he's going to say by way of application is rooted in the doctrine, in the truth of what he has said. And so as we come to these verses this morning, the author moves from doctrine to application, Telling believers that what we believe must transfer into our life and actions. Now, you might not say that, you might say, well, that's not very profound. Isn't that obvious? Yes, it is. But it has to be said. Application, in the very meaning of the word, means applying something doesn't just exist in and of itself, it's the application of something, to something. And that's what the author is about to do. He's to take this truth and then say, Christian, believer, you are to live in the light of this. It's to be in your life and in your actions, and by extension we could say in our words, in our thoughts, in everything that we do. We're going to begin the exposition, therefore, of this section with three things this morning. Lord willing, we will finish this up uh, when I return, Um, but there is much here that I do not want to uh, rush through this, Uh, and so we're only going to make a beginning this morning. But we're going to consider three things this morning. First of all, definitive possessions. Secondly, A worshipping life and then thirdly a truthful life. So definitive possessions, a worshipping life, and a truthful life. So first of all then, definitive possessions verses 19 through 21. These verses summarize the great doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews. And they do so by identifying two things that believers definitively possess. They are theirs because of the great work of Jesus Christ. They possess these because of who He is and what He has done. The first thing is we have access to God through Jesus Christ, the author says, verses 19 and 20. Now, the key idea here is that we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. It's not just any access, but we can confidently enter, have access to the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. This confidence is something that the believer has, and therefore the believer must know that they have it in order to benefit from that. If they would live a godly life in Christ Jesus, if they would be productive, if they would be fruitful, they need to know the reality of this, that they have access to God through Jesus Christ. We might put it this way in terms of a picture, a picture that our children could understand. Christians stand before an open door, and they can confidently go through it. There's no barrier here. The door is not shut. It's not locked. It's not barred. It's not like that curtain in the temple prior to the death of Christ that barred the way of entrance. Christians stand before an open door with free and open access to God with all of their sins paid for, the author says, atoned for, verse 19. Now, the reality of this, um, the benefit of this kind of access to God for the believer, makes a most important impact on how we as Christians should think and live. Again, this is not some abstract truth and doctrine. It is have a real practical application. We are to live in the light of it. And it should affect how we think, how we speak, how we act. Remember back earlier in the letter, the author had somewhat previewed this truth. Hebrews 4 verse 16 where he says, Let us then with confidence, same word, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, we have been confronted with many needs this week, haven't we, for those in our congregation. How has this truth practically helped you? Because it is there to help you, to help me in such times. What does he say? When we are confronted by serious illness and sickness, when we are praying for families who are passing through those things, what does he say? He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's why, as some of us gathered earlier in the week, early one morning uh, to pray, for some of these circumstances. I read this very text. Why? Because in the end, I have no words that can comfort you or anybody else, but God does. He says there's an open door, brethren, and you can confidently draw near to a throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace in the time of need. Very practical, isn't it? Verse 20 goes on to tell us that this kind of access is something new for the Christian, this side of the completed work of Christ. It's a new way that Jesus has opened up. What that means is, Christian, you possess something that the Old Testament saint did not, the right to enter through the holy place into the very presence of God. Jesus opened that up by His life and by His death so that we might have free access to God through Him. It's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? It's a wonderful blessing. See here how the author describes it as this living way. Why so? Because Jesus lives forever to secure that access. Have you ever come to a place where It was open before, but when you returned on another occasion, it was not. Door was shut. Gate was shut. Perhaps it was barred. Perhaps it was locked, and you couldn't get in. What you'd enjoyed on the other side before was was no longer available, at least on that occasion to you. Christian, that will never happen to you now because of what Jesus has done. He ever lives, and so the way that He has opened is a living way that will never close. Free access, continuous access to God through Him. He Himself, in that sense, is that veil through which we are invited to pass. It was not a physical curtain, as was the picture of the curtain in the temple. It was the very body of Christ Himself that was rent, so that we might have access, draw near to God by His life and death. Of course, that's the very picture, isn't it, that we've been seeing again and again in the book of Hebrews. Christ's work as priest and as sacrifice has brought about this new and living way way that did not exist like this before, but it will exist forever now for the believer, for He reigns eternally as our great High Priest. So, first of all, we have this access. Secondly, as our definitive possession, we have Christ Himself. We have a great High Priest over the house of God, verse 21. The one who opened and secured the way for us into God's presence is there himself for us. He's there as our priest. He represents us. He pleads for us with a petition that is always effectual. He pleads effectually for our acceptance on the basis of what he has done. He secures that for us so it can never be lost. On the basis of that, the Father and the Son send the Spirit of God so that He might dwell in our hearts, so that we too then are fitted and empowered to be worshipers of the one true and living God and to be that kingdom, nation of priests, before His throne. Because our High Priest is there, we can know that we belong there too, as we are united to Him by faith, and hence we can approach with confidence. So, two definitive things. We have access, and we have this great High Priest over the house of God. Well, then that brings us in the second place and our second main point to a worshiping life, verse 22, a worshiping life. It is because of these great possessions, these definitive possessions of the access we have and our great high priest, that Christians then have an obligation to live a certain way, that we are not just free to live as we please. And the author here sets out a threefold manner of life as the believer's reasonable, to use the apostle Paul's word, the believer's right response to the saving ministry of Jesus Christ. Three times here in these following verses, 22 through 25, the author is going to say, let us On the basis of what Christ has done, therefore on the basis of the things that you possess in Christ, then let us do this, and this, and this." Together these three let us expressions therefore present what we might call a pattern of life. They're not just three individual things or even three combined things. They join together for a way of living, a pattern of life that every believer is to make his or her own. This is how, how we are to live. If we believe this truth, if we profess this truth, then this is the difference it has to make in the life of the believer. Let us be this. Let us do this, says the author. And the first one we have here is with reference to a life of worship, verse 22. Because of who Christ is, what He has done, because of what we possess in Him, let us in fact really, truly, not talk about drawing near, not talk about we are able to draw near, but actually draw near, the author says. Let's do it. Again, you see, it's very practical, isn't it? This is, this is application. Not talking about it, but doing it. Because we have confidence to approach God's throne, because we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, in fact, draw near. Now, we might think of that specifically as an exhortation to prayer, and it is. Prayer as we gather regularly in worship. Prayer as we gather regularly in prayer meetings week by week. Prayer as we gather occasionally, as we call special times of prayer, as we did last week. Prayer as we gather in our homes as families. Prayer as we pray individually. Let us draw near to God, he says. More broadly, the author he has in mind in his exhortation, in the full scope of it, is not just the act of prayer but a life of worship in all of the richness and in all of the um, uh, fullness of what God has called us to in His worship. We are reminded that worship is both our highest privilege and our most central duty or obligation. That's what we were made for, was it not? God, our Creator, made us to worship Him. He demands our worship. He has the right to do so. And in the worship of God, the believer finds what we call a freedom to be exactly what we were made to be. It's not some burden. It's not some restriction. It's to fulfill the very thing you were created to do. Again, let's try and maybe illustrate with that with something that may be more familiar to us. Think about those who are gifted musically. Um, they play so wonderfully, don't they, on a variety of instruments. Um, and if you sit down and talk to a musician like that, as they play, um, they, they express it often in this kind of way. Well, you know, it, I'm just doing what I was made to do. You know, this gift was given to me, and, and I don't consider it a burden to have to play, you know. Um, now, if you don't have much gift and you're made to, to study music, it might be a different matter. Um, but, but where that is the gift that's been given to you, um, a great musician doesn't complain about having to play music do they? I'll take a different illustration. Somebody who's gifted athletically and uh, they love to run, um, they just say, well, this is what I was made to be if they're a great runner. And they run for miles, and they, they don't complain about that, do they? It's just what they, they say, this is what God made me to do, and I just run and run and run. That's the idea here. In the most profound sense, we are created in the image of God to worship God and in Christ we are set free to fulfill that great calling. And so, the right worship of God is essential to who and what we are as Christians and in the living of the Christian life. Again, not detached, decoupled from the Word of God, so that I kind of worship according to how I feel and what pleases me, but I'm set free to worship God as He has commanded. That is who and what I am. And so here in verse 22, the author presents a a summary, if we might say, uh, a summary how-to. Again, if you like things very practical, it doesn't get more practical than this. He spells it out for us in a very summary how-to draw near to God in worship. First of all, he says there has to be sincerity in the heart, a true heart that relates to God in that adoring way with right affections, right priorities, not just going through the motions, not just turning up and ticking a box to say, well, I was in a building for an hour on a Sunday, but sincerity, a right heart. And then secondly, in full assurance of faith the sincere believing heart is filled here with the assurance that god receives him accepts him accepts his worship as it offered in christ by the spirit through unwavering trust in all that god is to him and for him in jesus christ having received all the promises of god and the beneficiary of such promises Thirdly, we are to draw near to God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, the author says. By sprinkling here, the author, of course, is referring to the blood, in particular the blood of Christ, which alone sets free the sinner's guilty conscience. As we draw near to God, we don't come cringing, we don't come doubting, we don't come wondering, does God still have something against me? It's not like when Jacob was about to meet Esau again after Jacob had cheated his brother out of the birthright. Remember how that went down. Jacob was fearful of meeting Esau. What is he going to do to me after what I did to him? And that is no comparison to the state by nature that we are as sinners before God. Rebels, lawbreakers. But now, having been forgiven in Christ, we are those who can come confidently because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Fourthly, then, we must worship having our bodies washed with pure water. This is obviously a reference to baptism, but not just to the sign and the symbol itself course it is that, but it's also pointing to that which baptism symbolizes, the sign and the thing signified, the symbol and the thing symbolized, that spiritual renewal that is the great work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. That's how we are to draw near to God. First, we are to come with a true heart. Let me ask you, did you come into the worship of God this morning with a true heart? Heart that is undivided in your affection, undivided in your intent and purpose to worship Him and to worship Him alone. God alone is worthy. You alone are worthy, O Lord, was the great anthem of heaven in the book of Revelation. And we must come to worship Him We're not here to get something first and foremost for ourselves. It's not so we go out and feel great. We come to give worship to God. Thou art worthy, to use the old language of 1611. And then secondly, we must come with assurance and confidence of acceptance that comes from genuine faith in His saving work. Thirdly, we must be able to deal with our sins. We don't come wondering, have they been forgiven? Have they not? We don't come with continued guilt of conscience. Is the work of Christ sufficient to turn aside the wrath of God? Rather, we come with the confidence of the completed work of Christ. That's why as we order what we call the order of service, the liturgy, it is ordered in the way that it is to address these things. We read the law of God's Word so that it reminds us that in our natural state we are guilty. And therefore we confess our sins. That's why we have a time within our prayer for confession of sin but then we receive the great assurance of God's Word for all who confess their sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we are to hear God's Word of pardon as we have confessed our sins. In some congregations, they actually read a portion of the Word of God that assures the people of God of that outside of the prayer of confession. I don't think it matters so much of how you do it specifically, but it needs to be there, whether it's within the prayer, whether it's a separate part of the liturgy. We confess our sins, and we hear God's promised assurance of pardon. Christian, you are pardoned this morning if you are trusting in Christ. Do you believe that? You are pardoned all of your sins, all of your sins. And so as we put together what we call the elements of worship, it's not just some pointless liturgy, some archaic way of doing things as people often think today. But it's the biblical way by which sinners come to God and are accepted by Him. And then fourthly, we must come believing and relying upon the work of the Spirit, trusting Him to cleanse us, to renew our hearts, even as we come to the Father in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you do not benefit at all from worship, the worship of the one true living God. And if you are a true Christian, and if you're seeking to grow in the Christian faith, then you should and you must be increasingly benefit from this central part of what you exist for. Then, here in verse 22 is the instruction manual, we might say, the helpful guide to you with regard to what you are to do. If you can come in and go, well, you know what? I didn't really get anything out of that. Didn't do anything for me. Then we need to come back to this and see this is what it is all about. Plead with God to come with sincerity of hearts. Come in full assurance of faith. Come with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And come with a body washed with pure water, knowing not just the sign, but the thing signified. Well, then that brings us in the third place to a truthful life. A truthful life, verse 23. So, Christians are not, all, are not only called to a worshiping life, they are called to a life of truth, verse 23. This here is the second of the three great exhortations, that we must hold firm to the gospel hope, even in an unbelieving world. The word confession here is a formal word. It means a public and a doctrinal confession. It means something that is defined in terms of this truth, and it's something that we publicly make known. And so it's in this way, this manner, that the writer to the Hebrew says we must uphold the truth, the doctrine of the Word of God. Now, again, many Christians in our day and generation, particularly in the Western world, are sadly known for their casual treatment of the truth. People go, it doesn't really matter so much. You know, if you want to believe that, that's okay, but, you know, don't insist that I have to. One commentator puts it like this He says, quote, They readily trade the doctrines of the faith in order to get along with other Christians, to create a superficial sense of unity," end quote. Does that sound familiar to our day? Start to speak about doctrine, whether it be from the pulpit in the service, be it in Sunday school hours, be it in visiting with each other, pastoral visitation with the elders, uh, hospitality in one another's homes. Talk about doctrine all of a sudden, people start to get a little bit uncomfortable. Well, now, wait a minute, let's not get too precise here. Let's not insist on too many things here. Because, as you hear in the modern world, often doctrine divides. Well, as we were thinking in a Sunday school hour not that long ago, um, sometimes that's its purpose. It does divide those who uphold the truth and those who do not. There are many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are bitterly persecuted for upholding that truth. They, by God's grace, valiantly take a stand upon this hope that is professed here that the author to the Hebrews speaks of. He talks about that confession of our hope the substance of our faith. All over the world, throughout the nations, Christians are called to publicly profess the content of their faith, and many suffer real persecution as a result. But here in the Lord's mercy, there isn't a great cost at present, is there? To To do such a thing, but we have become so lax at confessing the faith, making clear the statements of the doctrine of the truth of the Word of God. This is the faith. We were thinking about this recently, weren't we, from the book of Jude? And Jude said, all of the things, a lot of other things I wanted to write to you about, he says, but, I need to write to you about urgently contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. That's the same thing as the author of Hebrews is writing about here. It is that definition of what the faith is. It is those statements of the truth of the Word of God that we are to confess, both as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and as individual believers. The church, of course, is not just surrounded geographically um, with brothers and sisters all over the globe of those who profess this truth. Of course, the church has confessed this historically down through the centuries, so across the earth and down through time. And many in the church historically had to pay a similar high price for confessing this truth. In the early church, Christians were tortured to death sometimes for refusing to compromise this body of truth. They often put it in a very simple summary, but it communicated exactly the content. They said, Jesus is Lord. Read through the book of Acts again and again. That was the confessional statement of the church. Why was it so appropriate to put it that way in those days? Well, because there was somebody else who thought he was Lord and demanded that people say so. One Caesar of Rome. And when the Christians consistently said, Jesus is Lord, that meant by definition, Caesar is not, then they paid a great price for that but they gladly paid the price, enabled by the grace of God. We'll come to read of some of them as we get to the book of Hebrews, um, who are bitterly persecuted for consistently confessing the faith. Fast forward to the time of Reformation. We were thinking about the Reformation, weren't we, a week or so ago? This time thinking about the Reformation in England the Protestant martyrs, those who were burned to death, for what, as one commentator puts it, quote, many today would think of as petty theological distinctions, but which were in fact necessary doctrines for the hope that they professed, end quote. Do we often think about that? Brothers and sisters in times past have died to confess the truth, of which at times we go, eh, maybe it's not that really important. When we turn to the book of the Revelation, Revelation 12 verse 11, it shows such faithful believers in glory above, and what does the angel say of them? they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. They were willing to give up their lives in order to maintain the good confession, the word of their testimony. And so as we think about this issue of unswerving devotion to Christ and His gospel, we see it's a matter of special importance to the author, to the Hebrews. Uh, Here he is determined to thwart any idea of compromise among his readers. Uh, Remember, they were in danger of going back to a Judaism that they thought would be an easier religion, less persecution. And he says to them, do not do it. They were not to compromise with those who called them back into the former ways. They were to take their stand for Christ and to stand firm. Now, no doubt it was not something that made them popular. It's not a popular message, is it, to say, stand firm and pay the price? It's costly. But whatever was unpopular and costly then is the same today. It has not changed. But as it was essential in those days, it is essential too today. The author says it again and again and again. Hebrews 3 verse 6. He says, speaking of Christ's house, If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews three fourteen. He says, we share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4 verse 14, he then added, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast, he says, our confession. Do you think standing for the truth was important to the author of Hebrews? Yes, it was. And so our confession must not waver. What motivation do we have? What did they have? He assures them we have every reason to do it. Verse 23 concludes, but he who promised is faithful. That's why we had to do it. God is faithful to His promise, even at the great human cost of our very lives what God has promised he is good for even as we see and so early in revelation 12:11 and yet in spite of that brothers and sisters we're often tempted to not stand firm not stand fast we're tempted to somehow separate our theology from our christian life and think that we can do that and there will not be any issue separate theological conviction from Christian living. We might think about it in this way. As one commentator puts it, he says, quote, what other generations of Christians willingly died for, we often consider needless points of doctrine, end quote. Again, it's a symptom of our day that Theology for many does not seem to matter so much, as long as we can make some claim to some individual piety. That same commentator, thinking about that kind of argument and assertion, says, quote, but that is a false and dangerous position and one that leads us away from God and ultimately back to the world, end quote. We unmoor, untether ourselves from the truth of who God is and what He has done, then whatever claim we might make to spirituality and piety, he says, is false and dangerous, and ultimately will lead us away from God and back to the world. It was the great author Francis Schaeffer who said this, "'As a man thinks,' so He is." He went on to say, the inner thought world determines the outward action, end quote. See, what we believe, what we profess determines what we do. And so, as we close this morning, nothing is more important than what we believe. Nothing so shapes the way that we live as Christians, than that which we believe. Therefore, nothing is more important to the Christian life than the content of the faith that we profess, Christ and Him crucified. Therefore, we are not to be silent. We are not to compromise the truth. We are to be a truthful people confessing a truthful faith. we would hold unswervingly, unhesitatingly to the gospel, to the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ that give us that hope that we profess. Why? Because He who promised is faithful, and so we, as a result, by His grace, seek to be faithful to Him. Amen may God so help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that You would help us as we come to this part of the book of Hebrews where we think in very specific and uh, in intensive ways about the application of the truth. Grant us to know those things which are ours in Christ and benefit from them. Grant us to know our great calling to be a worshipping people, and grant us to confess the truth even as it is in Jesus, and so be a people of the truth. Lord, we need your help. In days, O Lord, when siren voices call us this way and that, when there are various contending uh, opinions and philosophies of men, grant us, O Lord, to stand fast and to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Here as we pray for Christ's sake, amen.